since you come from our suburb, <laughs> it'll be interesting to hear yeah. like which which IHOP did you go to? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was the thing. Did you go to IHOP? Oh, for sure. IHOP and Waffle House. Episode of Southern Fried Asian. I am your host Keith Chow. Happy to be back on the podcast. I'm not going to front. One of the reasons I started Southern Fried Asian is so that I would have an excuse to talk to today's guest about growing up in Virginia Beach and being on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. So that's my insider secret. Today's guest is the actress Michelle Krusik. Some of her credits include TV shows like Hawaii Five O. Fringe community. She's also appeared in films such as Nixon and, of course, the classic Asian American film Saving Face. This is a really fun conversation. It's the first time I ever had a guest who was from the same part of the South that I'm from, so it may get a little insidery in parts. But please sit back, relax, and check out my conversation with Michelle Kruzik. Joining us on the line is uh, an accomplished actress on stage, screen, movies, and television. You know her from her lead role in the classic Asian American film Saving Face. Please welcome to Southern Fried Asian, Michelle Kruzik. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, <laughs> fellow Virginian. First time I get to have someone who knows my hometown on the podcast. Yeah, I I feel like there's like a handful, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there <laughs> maybe we're out there like minions or something. <laughs> well, we have to we have to represent the seven five seven. That's where we come from. Uh, just to get it out of the way. You are uh, original, well, not originally, but grew up most of your life in uh, Virginia Beach, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, I that's not where I was born, but that's basically my where I would call like my, uh, you know, where where I'm from. Basically, mm-hmm. if someone were to just say, you know, where'd you grow up in, you know, in the states? Right. And <laughs> then you say you say the seven cities, and they don't know what you're talking about, so you have to be more specific. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I don't even... Oh, you're talking about Hampton Roads? Yeah. Seven Cities? Yeah. Seven, five, seven, seven. All these nicknames that we have for our neighborhoods and towns. Yeah, I I can't even say Hampton Roads without without it feeling kind of alien that's kind of a weird <laughs> a weird way of calling it but yeah I, I do know that that's what the area is called it's like hampton roads is like tidewater i think is another uh you know yeah tidewater yeah it's weird but reference. aren't all those names just kind of i don't know they're not very sexy none of those names are sexy <laughs> where did you grow up tidewater that's where i grew yeah, up tidewater <laughs> that was like the community college in the uh, area that's right tidewater uh, there was Waterside, but that sounds a lot cooler. But Waterside yeah, was in Norfolk. That was where all the uh, the tourists went. That the the few tourists who did come and didn't go to the beach would go to like Waterside downtown. Yeah, this is going to be uh, just fair warning to everyone out there listening. This is probably going to be just Michelle and I talking about our favorite like hangout <laughs> spots growing up. So <laughs> yeah, this will be like I feel like this might be a truly indie indie conversation. <laughs> Well, let's start from the very beginning to quote uh, The Sound of Music. What brought you to Virginia? Well, really, it, uh, it's the work of my, my father because he was in the Navy. And uh, I, I basically was adopted by my American father who it gets a little bit convoluted. So let mm. me just go back. I was born in Taiwan, uh, but I was adopted by my biological aunt. Mm. And she was married to uh, her husband, who uh, is Caucasian, and so he adopted me. And he's when I refer to my parents, they're my biological aunt and uncle. Mm-hmm. So he adopted me, and uh, we basically were, you know, we were a Navy family, and there was a base in uh, Norfolk and Portsmouth. It's a it's a big military town, yeah, military area. So I was uh, I was a military brat, and <laughs> so we we moved to Virginia Beach, and that's where where he ended up getting stationed, uh, he got shore duty. And that's when you get off of a ship, and then you're now, uh, basically, you know, you don't have to go out to sea every six months. So you're basically, you know, land, you have a place to stay while he's still serving the military. And that was your home base in Virginia Beach, and you went to school there, high school. Yeah. 
you know, before we started recording, we were actually reminiscing about, we literally were reminiscing about some of the places we used to, we used to go. We didn't actually know each other. We're around the same age. We didn't know each other growing up in Virginia Beach, but uh, we are very familiar with a lot of the same spots. We have a mutual friend whose family owned uh, a couple restaurants in the area and you actually helped them out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> our mutual friend, I love him. So it's nothing against his family, but I think <laughs> I was really, really young when I started working. I was 12. Yeah. So, well, that's, uh, that's typical. I think of any Chinese kid, right? Chinese like, kid. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like you, you walk, you go work. <laughs> yeah. No such thing as child labor laws in Asian families. No, no. And, you know, I was very happy to because it was the only social life I had. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it, it starting with my mom taking me to work. And she was a bartender at um, this friend of ours, uh, the restaurant, this Chinese restaurant that his father owned. She was the bartender. And I remember going to work with her. And I would basically sit in the, uh, like the storage closet. Yeah. <laughs> and I would sit in the storage closet and I would, I, I don't know what I did, but I remember just reading boxes and boxes of like, you know, bamboo shoots and, <laughs> and dry noodles. And I would just sit there all day, well, not all day, but like for, you know, maybe a good four or five hours. And uh, that's what I would do. And then eventually when I got older, which was like maybe 12, I started working there. Yeah. No, same. I mean, when I was a similar age, even younger, my family... So I, I, before I came down to Tidewater, uh, we lived in Page County, Virginia, which is like deep in the heart of the Shenandoah Valley in, uh, you know, northwestern part of the state. And my family had a Chinese restaurant there. And from birth, basically, until I was about 15 years old, I would be at this place. And then when I when we moved down to the Chesapeake, Virginia Beach area, my parents branched out and they opened their own restaurant in Chesapeake. Theirs was called Jade Garden. Uh, Chinese people love oh their gosh. gardens. <laughs> I I wait. So where was Jade Garden? So that not that there. There was actually two different Jade Gardens in the yeah. There's uh, like one on like uh the, like the junction of like Virginia Beach Boulevard, right? And in like green, like in the Green Run area or something. And we actually owned one in Chesapeake, right on Battlefield Boulevard. Uh, we would we would catch all of the folks who were driving down to like Nags Head, um, to come and they would stop by and eat at our restaurant. And but people would get us confused because people we would get calls from people out in Virginia Beach asking for delivery, and we'd be like, "No, we don't go out that far. Different restaurant." Um, <laughs> so yeah, not not a lot of creativity when it comes to like Chinese restaurant names in the area. No, that that was in in my one person show, which we were kind of talking about. That was kind of the thing I always joked as a child. I was like, "Why did why is every Chinese restaurant named essentially the same thing?" <laughs> And it's, it's like, the same, like, the Chinese characters are even the same, and it's, it's crazy. Uh, but no, I, I grew up in an, in an office. We sat in an office when I was a little kid at my parents' restaurant, and then as, when my, uh, my younger brother was basically, the same, same deal, in a storage closet. <laughs> uh, he would watch a little tiny television in the storage closet, and then when he turned old enough, he would also... Actually, even when he was eight years old, he, was, he would take people's money at the register, and it was, it was like, so adorable. And no one questioned the, uh, you know, the the violations by making an eight-year-old work. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, I wonder, like, that is that is so much my childhood. I, I wonder what it would have been like. I don't know. What a, what is a real childhood? <laughs> Nobody knows. No one knows. Um, but the good thing, I, I remember always looking forward to the free soup that I would get. <laughs> And it was like it was like always like the best egg drop soup or, yeah. or hot and sour soup, and I remember I'd be, I'd be like just you know eating. Wait, can I? This is so silly. I, can I cuss on here? Yes. Oh yes, we have we have the e on <laughs> iTunes. So the e on okay. <laughs> Curse your um, heart's content. I mean, I would eat the shit out of some soup, dude. <laughs> but whenever the boss would come by, my mom would like do like a shh. Right. And then I would like, I would like, you know, I would cover the, the soup because <laughs> it was like my 10th bowl, you know. And of course, I'm like, what? I'm like nine years old. What's he going to do? You know, right, tell right, your right. kid to stop eating us out of our, our, our soup. But I did I actually, they're fond memories, even though it was, as you say, it was child labor once I started working <laughs> I really did enjoy being there. Yeah, you know, and I wonder, and I, as someone who did grow up in a in a Chinese restaurant, and, and they served a lot of, quote-unquote, Americanized Chinese food. I know we did. 
What is your opinion of that? Because I've talked on this podcast uh, a few times in the past that like I actually hold you know some some fond memories of that type of food. Where where do you fall in that kind of General So's chicken yeah. versus like quote unquote authentic Chinese food? You know, I I'm a foodie, so <laughs> I, I, I mean, I I'm kind of of the general mind that if it tastes good, it's good. Right. You know, and I feel like American food is such a bastardization and such a, a mix of so many different flavors and cultures mm-hmm. that whether you call it Americanized or not, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have been to uh, China and I've eaten, I've eaten some food where I'm like, oh, they really do use the same kind of thick white sauce, <laughs> you know, right. and a thick brown sauce. Um, I wouldn't say that some of the ingredients are the same, but right. the flavors are very similar, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not too, you know, that's not really, uh, that, it's not really that big of a deal for me in terms of what people talk about in terms of the Americanized Chinese thing. Right, right. I do think that, uh, Taiwanese food, however, is a whole other echelon, but oh, I may say so oh, myself. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, and I think that's the thing about what's, what's great about like Chinese food in general, whether it's Chinese food from mainland China or, you know, southern Chinese food, which is like dim sum and Cantonese cooking, which is what my family did, to to Taiwanese where you get like like Taiwanese people can do some pork chops and fried chicken. Let me tell you, as they a southerner, <laughs> as a Chinese Asian southerner, I do appreciate Taiwanese fried chicken and Taiwanese Ta- uh, pork chops. Oh my gosh, Taiwanese fried chicken is so delicious. I like I I think about it. I, like there are times when it just pops into my head. <laughs> You just know, it's just, there's that there's that salty flavor that's it's just so uniquely Taiwanese. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get me hungry. Well, you know, and it's funny. Usually we end on the food conversation. But, you know, because you and I kind of grew up in Chinese restaurants, I guess there's no better place than to start at the Chinese food. <laughs> right. So wait. So what was your parents specialty? What was the, so we uh, I mean, at the restaurants that that my family ran, it was, it was Americanized Chinese food, but, um, we're, my parents both came from Hong Kong. So when, when we weren't serving customers, we would eat, you know, more traditional, like Cantonese style food. Like, although you, I, one of the foods, I think you even mentioned it in your one woman show is like the, uh, sticky rice that's wrapped in a, I don't know if it's a banana leaf or. Yeah. It's a banana. Yeah. yeah. We call it which yeah, is the Taiwanese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's Cantonese is a similar. I'm not going to try to say it because I'm just embarrassed myself because I speak terrible Cantonese <laughs> and I don't want my family members to mock me. And that's the reason I don't it, speak Cantonese anymore. It's because they all mock me when me. I try. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so like that would be the... Um, and, and it's terrible for me because I'm actually allergic to shellfish. And uh, as, as a Cantonese person, exactly, as a Cantonese person, like basically can't eat half the menu at a at a... Cantonese restaurant, um, but it's all good. I still love it all. <laughs> well, I definitely feel like the only one food that I didn't understand was was egg foo young. Like to me, that was the one thing where I wasn't. I wasn't. I don't think I've ever really seen an egg foo young dish. To be honest, like so. drenching it in the brown gravy. Yeah, you know, yeah. you didn't get it. I, I, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> it's like, no, it's probably got some egg in it, right? Right. It's basically well, we did it as like a. It was a fried omelet, like a deep fried omelet basically and then you put it over rice and drench it in gravy um huh? it's, it's, it's delicious that's very southern, that's, very southern. <laughs> that's the thing about being a southern asian man uh i, I there was this place we used to go to because I, I went to a magnet school and it was in norfolk mm-hmm. and across the street like you know like anytime as a kid you could go and eat out right it was like just you know like such a treat because uh, i was i always grew up with such I, you know, my mom always cooked amazing food at home, mm-hmm. but I would kill for like Chef Boyardee's or, <laughs> you know, like McDonald's, yeah. you know, any, any kind of food that was not Chinese was like, oh my gosh, I right. just need to get me some raviolis. But we would go to this magnet school and before school started, we went to this little Chinese place across the street and it, this was like on Hampton Boulevard or something mm-hmm. like that. I can't remember. But I remember their menu used to be like friend fry. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my friends would order, you know, they'd go, I would like two friend fry. And I would be, I, I like, I would stop and I'd be like, I can't tell if I should be offended or if I should tell them <laughs> to knock it off, you know, but everybody would go up there and, and they would say, we want two friend fry. And then they would repeat it. And it was really awful, but yeah. Um, yeah. 
that Chinese place, I remember being very fond of it because they had everything on the menu. They had Chinese food, hamburgers, right. and fries. <laughs> I, I mentioned earlier I, where I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley. Was, it's like this really small town in um, Page County, Virginia. And this, this is when I was really little. And we actually took my, – my grandfather took over this restaurant called Brown's, which was which had been in Luray. That's where I'm from for – for generations and then this chinese family in the 70s came in and took it over and we actually kept the name we kept it named browns we just called it browns chinese american restaurant and our menu was half chinese food and half like spaghetti steak cheeseburgers and so there was there was a sizable portion of the clientele that came in and only ordered the american food you mm. know, but just prepared by these chinese people <laughs> you know what i mean but like for, right. for decades the same family would come in and order like spaghetti and a super cheeseburger and and then never even touch the chinese side of the menu well yeah, that's crazy. because you guys were ahead of your time because you know like my uh babysitter she's el salvadorian and mm-hmm. she says some of the best pupusas she gets is from a north korean guy <laughs> There so, you, you know, you guys just ahead of your time. I guess you were so. already making, you know, just food with, you know, outside of your own of your own comfort zone. Like maybe, maybe that's what it was. Well, and the thing about Norfolk, and that's I actually went to college, I went to Old Dominion, so I know Hampton Boulevard fairly well. And there was a Chinese spot. And and any kind of like hood Chinese food though is yeah, it's that's its exactly own what kind it was, of like Yeah. It was a little place outside of, uh, in front of DU on Hampton. And it was next to like a, a Euro place, a Greek place that had yeah. amazing steak fries. As a, as a Virginia Beach high school student, when did you decide you wanted to be an actress? Where did you go from like the little girl in the storage room at the Chinese restaurant to I want to be an actress? What was that journey like? Well, I actually met my first agent at that Chinese restaurant. Oh, really? And... Uh, I was 12, like I, like, like I said, I was working already, and I was selling dim sum in the main, you know, room, and I encountered this little old lady who asked me, she said, are you interested in, in doing some t- television? And I was like, oh my God, of course, <laughs> because, you know, I'd been, I was already, you know, had dreams of being Madonna in my bedroom, yeah. you know, and as every young adolescent child at that time would. And so she basically invited me to get some headshots done, and I went home and told my dad, and we did the whole headshot thing, and then she took me on as a as a young, you know, actor, and I started going out for commercials and print work, and that's where that journey started on a professional level. Mm-hmm. But then when I was uh, fifteen, I had been interested in drama, but I decided to audition for the the magnet school that I was telling you about mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. And I got into the theater department, and then I started uh, training as an actor. And then uh, in college is when I decided, okay, I'm going to also study this in in college as an undergrad. And you stayed in Virginia. You went to Virginia Tech for college. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I had uh, you know I had aspirations of going to maybe a, a big drama school. But money was always a big issue for my family. Mm. I, I was paying my way, my own way, and I had to, to do everything off of scholarships. And staying in state would have made everything really cheap. And I think I, you know, I went to UVA, toured it. I got into UVA and then considered going there. But then Virginia Tech offered me a theater scholarship, and right. so I decided to go where where the the arts were. So I did that and studied theater arts and English as an undergrad. And then one summer, I got a scholarship to study at, at Oxford University, and that was also the same summer that I met Oliver Stone um, at the at the college. Mm-hmm. And I ended up auditioning for him for Nixon. And that summer, I went to Oxford, studied, and made the movie Nixon, and realized, oh, I just I really want to act, and I really want to give this thing a shot. So I made this five year plan and decided to stop straddling academics and the arts and just devote myself totally to the arts for five years at least to see where that would lead me and that's basically what started my career and so that was your very first role in nixon yeah that was my first major yeah major hollywood production i think until then i had done little things like i had done really bad uh, industrials in the area like i still have i don't know um there was like a ford commercial that i did <laughs> Uh, like local, I, local to Virginia Beach. Yeah, 
Yes, exactly. Very local. I did uh, industrials where, you know, uh, you, you taught people how to do things. And <laughs> I did print work for the magazine Portfolio, which was sort of like the Hampton Roads uh, LA Weekly, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, an, that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I even auditioned. Oh, I, I did. I did. The only time I've ever done extra work was on this movie called Vanishing Sun. Yeah, with Russell Wong. Yeah, it it came through town, and really? I, yeah, and I I did background work on it, and they treated me so horribly <laughs> that I remember leaving that day going, "I'm never going to be an extra again." <laughs> I vowed. Uh, they were just so mean to me. So I, I was like, I'm never going to, no matter what happens, just I'm not going to put myself through that again. <laughs> the the role that I, I remember seeing you for the very first time is, uh, speaking of my brother watching television in the closet at our restaurant, we were both sitting in that closet and we were watching Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. And, and from the episode where Molly O'Brien, who is uh, Miles and Keiko's daughter, which well, she was a child on the show, she gets in some sort of transporter accident and becomes a feral adult and you played Molly O'Brien for, for an episode. That was the very first time I, I think I ever saw you uh, on television. Well, that was my first uh, job in Los Angeles. Really? Yeah. I had done a hosting gig for the discovery channel. Right, that's right. There's like a, world. That, I remember that. What was this like world travelers or something? Yeah. So I did that for essentially two years and then moved from, Virginia Beach to Los Angeles during the, the filming of that show. And uh, so Deep Space Nine was basically the first job I got after having made that move. So um, it, I was living in, gosh, I think I was living in, no, I was living in West West LA at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to say that I, at the time, one of my first spots that I lived in Los Angeles was uh, across from Leonardo DiCaprio's no. <laughs> mom's house. Uh-huh. And I remember calling my dad and telling him, uh, Dad, Leo DiCaprio's mom lives across the street from me. <laughs> and he'd be like, who is that? And I'm like, Leo DiCaprio? And he would say, when are you going to be on Star Trek? And I and finally I made the call and I was like I'm going to be on Star Trek. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. So, so I mean, was that even in the cards, or was your dad just like a big Trekkie and wanted you to be on Star Trek if you're going to be an actor? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, he was a huge Trekkie. We were all Trekkies. We I grew up watching. You know, I mean, of all of the Star Treks. Nine, Voyager, all that stuff. I, I grew up watching all that. So what was that like being on the show, even if it was just one episode? It was interesting because it was my first job in Los Angeles. And, you know, it was that whole <laughs> thing of people get on a series and they seemed really angry and bitter. <laughs> and nobody wanted to be there is my impression. Right. And I was this eager, wide-eyed, like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to be alive. <laughs> you know, you know, somebody's hired me to, to throw myself up against an imaginary wall pretending to be feral, you know, <laughs> Molly O'Brien. And uh, everybody else was like, just, you need to, like, calm down and just go over there. <laughs> So it was a, it was a bit of a shocker, but then I realized, you know, I guess this is just what happens. That's set life, man. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's rewind though back to being in Virginia, since ostensibly this is Southern Fried Asian. What first of all, do you consider yourself a Southerner? Is that something that is part of your identity at all? Yes and no. I, when I was in Virginia, I remember people asking me who won the Civil War, <laughs> and I and I because that's still know, up for debate in the South in some parts. Yes, I think so. And I remember saying, well, uh, we did. And then I remember people looking at me like, well, what do you mean? And then I realized <laughs> that I was always kind of siding with the Northerners, right. but I forgot that I was living in the South. So <laughs> that attitude was not, you know, really the, the norm. So I remember that always being a conundrum for me because I never understood what people were saying. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I, I grew up in the South, but I've always considered myself as being fairly progressive. Right. So I, I don't see myself as a Southerner, but for some reason I understand the Southern, I mean, not for some reason, I grew up in the South, so <laughs> I understand the Southern mentality, but I do think that Virginia Beach and Hampton Roads was much more 
neutral, like when it came to voting and, you know, we would vote more democratically on a national level and more Republican on a, on a local level. Right, right. But it would always go either way, you know, and I always thought that was really kind of interesting about about um, the area I grew up in. You know, you saw that in this last round of elections where... You know, you weren't sure where they got to go, red or blue. Right. You know? Well, and, you know, one of the things that I always find about talking to other Southerners, especially like progressive Southerners, is this idea that, it, it, to the detriment, I think, of, of progressive politics, that oftentimes people do kind of dismiss whole swaths of the country and assume that because it's the South, it's this deep red state. Uh, and, and we don't even need to compete down there because they're only going to, they're all racist. They're going to only vote for like the racist white guy. And as you said, there are pockets of progressive minded people throughout the South. And, and the last special election in Alabama showed that if you compete, if you run in some of these places and you have a positive message, you can, you, you don't have to just, you know, assume that the, uh, the entire part of that whole part of the country is, you know, lost. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it, it was a really unique I think it was a great place to grow up. I, I, I think being Asian American in that area was not so interesting because I did identify with being more white than Asian. Mm-hmm. Or at least outside of my home, I felt that I was, I felt like I was seeing the world filtered through, you know, kind of just being white. And then inside my house was a very different world. It was, I was very Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, and I lived a very sort of private world private life where you didn't really share amongst your friends what was going on with the family. Right, so right, I right. felt like it, I feel, I feel like it was a, it was a place where you could be very bicultural. That's interesting um, that it's almost as if you grew up mixed race, even though you aren't technically mixed race, but because you, your adoptive father was white, you did have a, almost like a hoppet experience growing up. Yeah, I would, I would say so. And, and especially with my mom, she, I think because she was always displaced uh, emotionally and culturally as having come as having immigrated here well into her, you know, into her adulthood. Mm-hmm. I think for her, she really wanted to uh, wanted me to assimilate so that I didn't experience any kind of racism. And so she was always very vocal about trying to trying not to, you know, rock the boat and and uh, and and passing me off as Hapa if people mistook me as Hapa. And you know, it wasn't until I kind of moved to Los Angeles that I was really surprised that there were so many Asian people. <laughs> and I didn't realize that it had had impacted my experience growing up quite a bit. I just didn't realize it. You know, I laughed at I laughed at uh I laughed at, you know, jokes that were aimed at Asians because I kind of identified in that way for so long. I didn't date Asian men for a very long time, a long period of my life because I identified, you know, with, oh, well, they, they remind me of my brother. I would have right, these right. very sort of like, you know, these sort of conflicted moments where I, I, I was confused, like, well, I, I don't know. That's just how I feel, you know? And then I realized, oh, I, when you grow up not having yourself reflected, right. You, you, you're going to see yourself uh, in a certain way. When whiteness is the default, that's what you default to. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I didn't realize that in, until way into my, <laughs> you know, which way into my 20s, because I thought I, I was fairly progressive. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And, but I also think because of my generation, you, you didn't really talk about feeling alienated because right. that made you look weak if you talked about feeling uncomfortable or invisible, you always wanted to seem like you were strong and dealing with it and, and everything was, you know, not a big deal. And that was sort of the kind of take it, take it like a, take it like a man approach, <laughs> uh, you know, until recently, you know, I've never really talked about not vocally, not in a way that was sort of activist, uh, you know, where I talked about what it's like being Asian in America. It wasn't until recent that I started to realize, oh, you know, I don't think I've really been that honest with people about what that was like growing up, uh, you know, Taiwanese or, in, or Chinese in, in a mostly white area. Right, right. Because that's the thing, you know, Virginia Beach is, like any community, pretty bifurcated in terms of like 
the demographics of where you live. So there are parts of Virginia Beach that are very white. There are parts of Virginia Beach that are majority black. There are parts of Virginia Beach that are actually heavily Filipino, interestingly. I think a lot of people yeah. don't understand that. You know, for me, I, I as I said, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. So I li- we literally were the only Asians for miles. <laughs> and for me, like, the, the culture shock for me was actually – Moving and I spoke about this in a previous episode. Moving from Luray to Chesapeake and then going to school and seeing other Asians that I wasn't related to was mind blowing. And it was and it was almost like other Asians didn't want to associate with me because it's like, <laughs> you know, for me I'm like, whoa, there's other Asian people. And then and other Asians are like, get away, dude. Like, you know, we we ain't hanging out. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. Which was new for me because it used to be like. You know, you would just zero in on the other person who looked like you, and then you can't do that. One, because you're in high school, and two, like, you're not special to them. (laughs) Right, right, right. And also, I don't know if this was was true for you, but having only been part of a handful and and always being sort of the, the odd person out culturally, you never wanted to be in a group because then you would get targeted <laughs> right right well and yeah the, definitely and and for me too because like my my parents so we moved to to hampton roads and then when we was kind of like established down there my, my mother's side of the family had all immigrated to america in the 70s but my father's side of the family didn't start coming to america until the 90s until we had moved down in virginia beach so we so by the time i was in high school and and you know early college all of my dad's brothers and sisters had also moved to like the Chesapeake Virginia Beach Norfolk area and so whenever we would go out to eat on the weekends we'd roll like 20 deep <laughs> into a dim sum <laughs> restaurant and it was and, and then you know afterwards we'd go to the mall and it was just like you felt self-conscious when you're like a 17 year old with like all of these aunties and uncles around, you know what I mean? Walking in this massive herd through the mall. (laughs) You just wanted to break off and like hope none of your friends saw you, you know what I mean? Right. Well, it's 2018 now and I still feel that way when I go back there. (laughs) You know, I still feel like, well, like my brother and I, because, because uh, my mom still lives there. Mm -hmm. When we go back to visit, when we go through the mall, he's always joking to me. I, uh, let's see how many people think you're my wife, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's because just being visible and in numbers right. <laughs> reminds us what it was like growing up there. And, yeah. uh, you know, there was never, uh, there was never a feeling of like direct racism. It was always these kind of subverted questions like, mm-hmm. you know, what do Chinese people like to do right, on, right, right, you, know, right. for free, you know, on the weekends or, you know, it's just those kind of questions where you're like, uh, I can't believe I'm going to answer this, <laughs> but, and people are really pleasant and sincere there, but they, I can't, I couldn't say that they're, I would say the spectrum of being exposed to different cultures is a little bit, um, maybe not what I would ascribe as completely complex. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think a lot of times too, as an Asian American in the South, cause the South is also very, like a lot of race relations in America, right? It's either very black or very white. And then Asian American, Asian Americans or Asians in general just don't necessarily fit in either. Um, and that's, I think even more pronounced in areas of the South. And I think one of the things that surprised me the most was when I, when I came to Virginia beach and, and seeing like Filipino American culture, like it oh, yeah. blew my mind because it was like there's there's actually an in between space. And they and they are the leaders yeah, there. Yeah. They were cool in my school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they could dance, they could right. sing. <laughs> you know, they were they were the cool people. They had sort of made it. They were like the Indians of our time. <laughs> and you know, I felt like if you were Filipino then that then you had it made. Yeah. Uh, there was something about Filipinos in in my high school that I felt like um, they were their own thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was weird, too, because, like, I, it, it's funny. When I was living in Lorraine, we were the only Asians in the town. I mean, it was a small town, so there was never, like, a sense of ostracization there. But then coming to, like, where where it was ostensibly more diverse is when I started feeling like, oh, okay, there's definitely, like, a hierarchy of even just, like, Asian folks, right? So, like, the more fobby, quote-unquote, Chinese folks would be down on the bottom of the rung, Right. Uh, but yeah, then you did have like I for the first time I saw like cool Asian people, and it and it yeah. was it was crazy. Like I never because there was no as you said if you turn on television or in the movies we didn't have Fresh Off the Boat when we were growing up we didn't have 
hot Asian guys in the movies when we were growing up. The only Asian guys on a movie screen was Getty Watanabe, right, in uh, Sixteen Candles. So, like, there was this lack of kind of role models. But then you did see, like, the cool kids were Asian in school, and that was that was a weird concept. Yeah. Well, th- that was that was the thing for me at my school was hip-hop was really big in, in Virginia Beach. I mean... Mm-hmm. On the East Coast, hip, you know, in terms of hip-hop, it was always East Coast hip-hop. And in, in my school, there was quite a few talented artists that came from that area. You know, there was I went to school with Pharrell yeah. um, and Chad Hugo of NERD. And, um, you know, they were, they were already kind of doing that thing at that time. Um, whereas with me, I always felt like I was the geeky Asian kid who was... <laughs> you know, studying and trying to make money to go to college. And I didn't go out to dances or I didn't, I didn't really date. I was always so focused on school. So I was never part of that cool crowd or cool, the cool scene. Right, right, right. I don't know whether it was just my family per se, or just being Asian. But I think for me, it was, it was, a, if you put all that together, it felt to me like a very Asian American experience. Yeah. And a lot of this came up in your one woman show that you put on in 2010 called Made in Taiwan. What was the impetus for putting that show together, which kind of does illustrate this growing up that you did in, in Virginia Beach? Well, it was primarily, basically, I went to school at Virginia Tech and I was working on a thesis for being part of the honors program there. And my playwriting teacher and I were trying to come up with a project. And basically we combined, I combined my efforts, which is I wanted to write a thesis about Asian American identity. And I wanted to write a one person show for my playwriting class. And so two birds with one stone, right? Yeah, basically. So I just did that and ended up writing about my relationship to my mother, which was a very complex one. And from the genesis of that came all of these stories that I ended up telling on the road when I was traveling with my friends on the Discovery Channel. And eventually they would tell me like, hey, tell this story and tell that story. And then pretty soon I realized I had a bunch of stories. And so I just piled all of that together and decided to make this show. And it was very... Uh, it was really raw, and it was very funny, and it was also very painful. And uh, when I did it, I, I guess I didn't realize at the time that it was really about identity. It was about domestic violence. It was about a whole bunch of things. But the fact that it was funny was really kind of what sold it. That's how that show came about. And, the, and that show ended up helping me quite a bit in terms of my career. And that show, you did it in... New York, and you did it in Los Angeles. Did you do it anywhere else? No, I mean, you know, I was kind of the only person behind that show. Mm-hmm. I, I was when I was when I wasn't working uh, on TV. I would always go back to developing the show, and my goal was to try and get it on the stage. And I would say that show probably would do much better now because the stories now are much more about personal experiences. Whereas back then, I felt like if you were an actor, you were just an actor. And if you were a writer, you were just a writer. Whereas these days, yeah. you can be an actor and a writer. Um, that's kind of where it's at. And, and at, at the time, when I, when I created that show, I think I feel like people were always a little bit weary of, oh, she wrote and performs um, in this show. So, so maybe it's just its own thing. Whereas I really did feel like it, it was really relevant and really universal. And I, and I kind of think that it might it might do really well in this day and age because it's very much like, you know, what's very popular right now, you know, master of none and all right, of the, right. and, you know, and, um, blackish and, you know, all these shows that are talking about race and culture and identity. I mean, it's going on almost 10 years now since you did that show for the first time, I think was that, would that be something you'd ever want or consider revisiting? Yeah. I mean, it's something where funnily enough, I'm now of the age where I could start to play the mom in a, in a real way. So <laughs> I, I, I would, before it was sort of the, you know, the protagonist is this young woman who's 16 mm-hmm. and, um, and but the but the real fierce character is the is the mother character, and she was always really quite quite. Uh, she was the draw of the show. Right. So if I ever revisited it, it would be to to really kind of give her even more heft. Yeah. Not that she needs it in the show, <laughs> but uh, you know I think there's a whole thing to Tiger Moms, and um, she's sort of the quintessential Tiger Mom. But but I don't make her one dimensional. Right. I, I really tried to make her as compassionate as possible. 
And I think if I were to revisit it, it would be to, to, to talk about that, uh, bring my understanding of being a mom now to the show. That's an interesting point that you make and, and a valid point about like any kind of stereotype is, is okay so long as that you don't constrict yourself to that stereotype, right? Like it, there may be tiger mom aspects, but because she's still a multi-dimensional, a real human being, right? That's what yeah. that's what elevates it from just being a, a one note trope character. Yeah, and I think with Tiger Moms, everybody kind of recognizes it, but I don't know if you know. I think what makes Asian Americans and and immigrants the whole trope of being an Asian mom mm-hmm. and being a very strong mother, I feel like people can see that on the exterior. Uh, but the interior life of that, I don't know if right. people really delved into that in a, in a very complex way because there's so much happening when you come to a country, you've been displaced, you become you become disempowered, and at the same time you are trying to empower yourself with with all the tools you have, and it's very limited because you generally come to a country and you're not educated here, but you raise these kids. To become the super overachievers of 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 the of future generations, and it's it's an it's an amazing complex world that I think a lot of us grew up in, but I don't know if we really talk about it in a way that's both deeply funny and deeply painful because right. I think most of us are just trying to figure out how to get visibility and you know function like any other human being. But I think most people's stories, when it comes to Asians, I always feel like I hear one person's tragic story and the next person is always more tragic than the <laughs> other person, you know? Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of the uh, knock against a lot of like independent Asian American cinema, right? It's like, how do you one up <laughs> each other's identity crisis? It's like right. every every other notion that there is, there is a single Asian American story, right? Because I think what you illustrated with this is that yes there are like layers that are similar but everyone's individual story is unique and everyone's uh experience is different um even though there are some overlaps but your story is an asian american story my story is an asian american story and we don't have to necessarily have the same asian american story that you you typically get in every other movie or novel or you know and and one of those one of those asian american those unique asian american stories is something that you're also a part of you know part of the canon as it were and one of the classics was the 2004 film saving face that you did with our mutual friend lin chen and directed by alice Wu. yeah what what was you won like awards for that movie what was what was that experience like being part of a film when you were making it did you know you were making a movie that was going to go down in the annals of like asian american cinematic history (laughs) to be to be hyperbolic well thank you keith i really (laughs) appreciate that Um, (laughs) no uh yeah i i did not know that at the time i think i think we all knew we had a very special film because it's very difficult to write a good film uh, much less a good Asian American film, <laughs> and we all knew that this, the script was very special, and Alice was uh, was a wonderful director and and a, and a really good voice for cinema. I think now looking back, uh, we we could see glimmers of it, but it was so ahead of its time. It was just one year prior to Brokeback Mountain, mm-hmm. and I think if it had come right after Brokeback, I think it would have maybe have have made a bigger splash in terms of the mainstream. But I think it's the the kind of film where when you are growing up and looking for some kind of reflection of yourself, it's the film you kind of bump into and discover and you realize, oh my gosh, this is this is a really, it's a beautiful uh, romantic comedy and, and with a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's the kind of film that a lot of, I think a lot of people will come up to me to this day and, and thank me for or tell me how it helped them come out. And I am really grateful that Alice gave us that as as a gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, as, as an actor at that time, it was mostly in the execution that I was really, you know, I was really grateful to her f- for giving that to me. But I had no no 
I had no recognition how long of, a, of what kind of legacy it would leave, you know, and, right, I, and I don't right, mean right. legacy. I, I, I wish I could have a better word, but some kind of some kind of thing for future generations. Yeah. To just well, kind of it, it is a legacy because like, I think that film does is there is a lasting effect of that film, even though it, I think it came out, like I said, in 2004. So it's some 13, 14 years later and it's still it's still impactful for people and it's still it still makes like lists of classic LGBT films, classic Asian American films. It's, you know, talk about an intersectional um, story. And, you know, you talked about being ahead of your time. And I think that Made in Taiwan, Saving Face also shows that you are also ahead of your time. And as you said, this is a movie that if it came out today, I think would be more widely accepted. Because I think also LGBT culture is better understood now than it was maybe 15 years ago. Um, right, there's definitely right. more acceptance. It's more part of the culture. I think Saving Face is one of those films that does have a legacy that does hold up and is timeless and will be around. Even if people are not LGBT, there are aspects of that film that is universal. And it's the speaks to the notion that the more specific a story is, the more universal it can be. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I appreciate all those comments you made because <laughs> I, I do think that it's a very important uh, film. And, you know, I I think it's... It's always hard to talk about something that you've been a part of. And mm. I mean, I, it's, listen, I think it was an awesome project. So uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir. So. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm really, because I'm a parent now and yeah. I see what my child, like I have a son who's four and I see what happens when he watches television. Anything he watches, he starts to adapt it in his imagination mm-hmm. And he always identifies with one or two of the characters, and he wants to become that character. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's just part of the way we develop as human beings. Um, I don't know if you know if I just specifically you know read him something, he would just identify with a character that he reads, or if it's the thing that he's seeing in front of him. But whatever happens for him in his development, he gravitates towards something, and he wants to be it. Right. And I think if we're going to encourage people to find their their individuality and their you know their own voices. I think you have to show them a reflection of many voices, and I think uh, Saving Face does that. And I don't know how many there are now. I mean, I obviously it's my it's it's my industry to uh, look at content and to create content and to watch what content is becoming. Although I, I don't know, I was going to say that I can't, I can't say that diversity is, uh, I mean, it's happening now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can't say that um, you have 20 saving faces. I would say there's probably a couple. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I really do think that, uh, it, that it is an important film and, and I hope it encourages other people who are diverse to, to try and do more of their own stories. Yeah. I think those are the stories that, that engage me more so than, say, another... Matt Damon movie? Another... <laughs> <laughs> I said it, you said you didn't have to. Um, <laughs> no, but I think but that but does speak to the power of, of media and representation and the, the conversations that have shifted in the last couple of years, particularly for Asian Americans. Um, this is a conversation that I think, when you were coming up, when I was consuming this stuff... That it wasn't something that you that people necessarily discussed. But this is why Saving Face is so you know prescient in that it was intersectional back in the early two thousand before people even used that terminology. You know, but yeah. but this idea of like whitewashing and representation and diversity, like these conversations around Asian American portrayals, I think is something that's shifted only in the last couple of years. And hopefully that shift will continue, and that we will have more opportunities for for folks who look like us and look like other folks to be represented and see themselves in these stories. Cause as you, as you said, it is powerful to see yourself out there and that when you don't see yourself, you, you automatically see less, you see yourself as less than, and you internalize that racism and bigotry. And as people who grew up in the South around other cultures, that's, that's kind of what happens when you are othered and that's what we have to continue to combat. So, yeah. Uh, this is where we yeah. normally shift to uh, talking about food, but since we we covered that uh, in the beginning, I just I would just want to ask you one thing: is that if there is if there was one dish that instantly reminds you of like going back to Virginia Beach, and as you said, you go back quite often. What is that dish? The the one dish I was thinking of is pork chop and eggs, which is what I would always get at Waffle House. Ah, Waffle House, <laughs> pork chop and eggs. Oh, you know, two eggs over easy with grits. Uh, 
that to me is what reminds me and makes me think of Virginia Beach. There you go. Which Waffle House? Uh, we, we would always do, gosh, which one? I always went to the Waffle House after coming back uh, from the Norfolk International Airport. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think there's like a Waffle House right, right near, like near Military Highway mm-hmm. or on Military Highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, my dad was he was so into Waffle House, uh, IHOP, and then there. Do you remember there was like uh, buffets? By the way, we never got to buffets in Virginia. Oh Beach. my god! Yeah, so we actually had a buffet. Like we had a little tiny buffet in ours, but yeah. Jeez, you had everything in your place. Well, well, it was it was like it was like a six tray buffet. It wasn't one of those like dynasty places where you had rows and rows. And that that is something that I did notice once I left Virginia Beach. It was like there were still buffets everywhere, but not the amount of buffets that you get down in Virginia no. Beach. I don't know what it is. People it's, love to eat a whole huge. bunch. of you got like yeah. a tray of crab legs. Well, there used to be a place called Captain George's, and then there was a place called Captain John's. Captain George's, yes, that's still and around, isn't it? I think there's still one one left. Yeah, in Virginia well, Beach. yeah, buffet. I would say is, would be my next sort of like. I know it's not one dish; it's all. The <laughs> it's dishes. all the dishes, literally all the dishes. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's it's that kind of old Southern breakfast, and then and then the buffet option, <laughs> which is everything. They're still around, I, though, right? Like old country and yeah. Well, I was going to say old, we used to go to old country buffet. Yeah. That was a huge one, and um, and Captain George's or Captain, which is which then became Captain John. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when it was Captain George's, and again, as a shellfish allergic kid, as like. That was the worst experience because, like, my <laughs> my uncles would be, like, snapping crab legs everywhere and I'd just have to, like, cover my face because uh, <laughs> it was just flying everywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. It would, you would just have to kind of uh, surrender to the experience. <laughs> uh, Michelle, this has, been, this has been so fun to, like, reminisce about Virginia Beach. So if folks wanted to keep up with your work and, and follow you on social media, what's... What's the best way to get in touch with you? They can probably just, you know, go to my website, which is michellekruzik.com and, uh, you know, find me there. I'm, I'm been, I used to blog quite a bit, but I kind of took a break. Mm-hmm. Um, or they can find me on Facebook on my public page. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being part of Southern Fried Asian. Hopefully we can uh, connect in the future and maybe I'll see you around Virginia Beach at one of the buffets. That would be awesome. Thank you for having me. This was really a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Michelle Kruzik. Thank you for listening. As always, you can subscribe and download Southern Fried Asian on Apple Podcasts and Google Play Music. If you do, please rate and review us so people can find the podcast. Southern Fried Asian is part of the Hard Knock Media podcast family. Other podcasts include Hard Knock Life, Ask By Girls, We're Not All Ninjas, and Daisy Geek Girls. Please tune in and subscribe and download to those as well. Find us online at thenerdsofcolor.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Southern Asians and on Instagram at Southern Fried Asian. You can find me on Twitter at the Real Chow, the underscore real underscore Chow, and at the Nerds of Color. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, keep it Southern Fried, y'all. <laughs>